0: This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be in chapter 1 this morning. We are continuing our series on Philippians that we began Last week, and Bill gave us a wonderful and exciting introduction to this letter. And he provided a number of themes that we are going to see throughout the whole letter. But even this morning, a number of those same themes will be in our text. We're going to be looking specifically at verses three through eight, but I'm going to begin our reading in verse one. So please look on with me now as I have the privilege and the honor to read to us God's. Holy and living Word. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. When real estate developer Peter Cummings first assumed his position as chairman of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in 1998... He began writing personal thank-you notes to any donor who contributed 500 or more dollars to the orchestra. He could not bear the thought of one of these donors receiving a form letter with their name accidentally misspelled or one of his friends being generically thanked above his stamped signature. Among many notes that went out under his hand, one was addressed to Mary Weber Parker, She was daughter of one of Detroit's leading families from an earlier generation. She was heiress to the Hudson's department store fortune. She had moved away from Detroit nearly a lifetime ago and settled in California. She was now a widow, and she was residing in an upscale nursing home right outside Hartford, Connecticut. And for some reason, she had decided to send a one-time check of $50,000 to her hometown symphony. So Peter's letter to Mary was as usual. It was prompt. It was gracious and unexpected. It must have thrilled the heart of this elderly widow who had been back to Detroit only twice in the past 20 years to hear of the orchestra's revitalization, made possible in part by her generous contribution. Two weeks later, she wrote pledging another $50,000. And within days, Peter had written her again, expressing his delighted gratitude and offering to come over from Michigan to visit her some time. He would be nearby when he took his daughter to register for college in Hartford, so he made no appeal for putting Ms. Parker on the annual giving campaign. There was no ask, as they say in fundraising circles. There was just a kind, personal attempt to say thank you. So months passed after meeting with her and spending time with her. Then a letter dated June 13th, Mary Weber Parker accepted Peter's request to come visit her in the fall. And if he wouldn't mind, she would like to give not 50, but $500,000 to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Not just once, but once a year for five years. That is two and a half million dollars. Isn't it amazing what a simple thank you can produce. Mary Weber Parker did not give out of duty. She did not give out of coercion. No, she simply gave because someone took the time to be thankful, to say thank you, to be grateful. And that is the power of gratitude. This morning, as, as we look at our text, we are entering into a portion where Paul is going to begin to say a prayer of thanksgiving for this church and now we get to enter in and hear not only the apostles words of thankfulness but also his heart of thankfulness and even though this was a common practice to begin letters this was not a a merely a routine for the apostle Paul. This was not merely something that he felt like he had to do. This was as much a theological moment for the Apostle Paul as much as it was a personal. Because for Paul, if you look at verse 3, how does he begin his thankfulness? He says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. And so he begins and he wants to remind this church Not only of what they have done, but what ultimately what God is doing through them. And he wants to stir in this church also thankfulness and awareness of what God is doing. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. And, And the Apostle Paul does not want to miss an opportunity for this church to be grateful. And he does not want to miss an opportunity for himself to be grateful and to communicate his thanksgiving. And so one of the kindest things that Paul can do for this church is not only thank them, but pray for them. And so we're going to study the apostle's prayer. We're going to see how he prayed for churches, how he thanked God for these churches. And Paul wants to make sure, first and foremost, that this church knows that he is not just praying for the elders and the deacons. He is not just praying for those that he has met. He has said he is praying for every single one of these people. He said that I pray for all of you, for every one of you. You always, in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. And so Paul, he's trying to emphasize. Now listen, I when I pray, when I think about this church, I see, I don't just see Lydia, I don't just see the jailer, I see Yodia and Syntyche who are disagreeing in the Lord, who are causing problems, who their disagreement I'm gonna get to, but first know this, I am thankful. Know first that I am grateful that you, when I think about you, this church, when I think about the ministry that you have done, my heart is, is filled with gratitude. And so as Paul does that, what he is doing is he is wanting to stir in this church gratitude for what the Lord is doing. And he is wanting to do that in our hearts too this morning. And in this text, what we discover is Paul is is writing from prison. He says in verse 7, "...it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace." both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so Paul is literally chained to a guard writing this letter saying that I want to begin by saying thank you. I would want to begin by saying, pray for me and help. I'm chained and imprisoned. And it's hard. But no, Paul wants to begin by saying thank you. Paul wants to begin by saying thank you to God for what this church is doing. It's amazing to see that the Apostle Paul's joy was never tethered to his circumstance because his life was united to Jesus Christ. And though, his, though he was separated from this church physically, his heart and his love and his awareness of what God was doing was right there in the midst of him. And he wanted to remind this church, and he wanted to remind us this morning that God is up to good. So if I could capture in a sentence what I think Paul is trying to say and encourage us to this morning is he wants us to live in the grip of gratitude for God's sovereign and gracious activity. Live in the grip of gratitude for God's sovereign and gracious activity. So this prayer is also an invitation to join him in giving thanks. I think it's very, it is easy for us today to complain. But Paul is inviting us to a greater way to give thanks. And so we're going to consider this text and we're going to look, see what God's gracious activity, what is it that God has been up to that has stirred Paul's heart to give thanks? Three points. First, their partnership in the gospel. Verse five, this word, Translated as partnership, it literally means fellowship. That's what the New Testament they say fellowship. Fellowship is one of those words that we must not let our overuse of it take away from its meaning. Fellowship is one of those things that we can just say, "Oh, we went to the coffee shop and had fellowship. We went and watched the game together, and we had fellowship." There, it can be a word that we just kind of throw out there, and as we throw it out there, it can lose really what it means. And so, Paul. When he uses this word, this fellowship word, this partnership word, he has a specific idea and meaning behind it. He does not use this word lightly. When Paul says partnership, it it is connected with what this church had done for him and what they have partnered with him in the gospel. And the reason that this is translated partnership and not merely fellowship is because it had commercial overtones of a business or a partnership. So the idea would be that in the first century, this word fellowship had commercial overtone. So John and Harry would buy a boat. They would start a fishing business. And they would say, okay, we're going to be in fellowship together with this business. So what are we going to do? We're both going to contribute money, finances. We are both, it's going to cost us something to have this business. So they are in fellowship with one another and they are both committed. They are in a partnership or agreement So in other words, for genuine fellowship to occur, there must be some reality. There must be some truth. There must be some experience that two or more people share. There must be a link that binds them. And I can think of no greater fellowship or a picture of fellowship than J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. It is made up of individuals of different origin and, and just amazing diversity. If we think about the people that we are in church with or the people that we are in fellowship with, there is a diversity. But when you look at these men that come together for the fellowship of the ring, there is just incredible diversity. Listen, there are four hobbits, tiny beings with large, hairy, shoeless feet, Frodo Baggins and his friends Mary, Sam, and Pippin. There are two men, warriors of the first rank, always dressed for battle, Boromir of Gondor and Aragorn, son of Erathorn. There's a wizard Gandalf, the ancient nemesis of evil and a source of wisdom. There's an elf Legolas from a fair race of archers. And then there's a dwarf Gimli, a stout hairy axe-wielding creature from the dark chambers under the mountains. These, these guys have nothing in common. Nothing. And you see it play out they get on each other's nerves they disagree on how when to have meal times and how much to eat they argue about who can be better but they come together and they actually what you begin to see is this fellowship and this bond begin to tighten because they've come together to fight the evil in the world they've come together to share fellowship to partner together to pledge together to fight against and to fight for, to get this ring and destroy it. So human friendship is a wonderful thing, but fellowship, it goes beyond friendship. Fellowship occurs when friends committed to a common cause or goal and flourishes through its pursuit. So just, I, I, you, I, I share about this fellowship of the ring because go back and remember Bill told us about Acts 16 and the beginning of this church. He, he, he told us about how this church began. It began with a woman, a Gentile woman named Lydia, who ran a business. God opened her heart to the gospel. And then after that, she and her household believed. And then as, soon after that, there was a Roman jailer who about took his own life, and he believed, and then his household was added. And then there was a, a girl, a slave, that was possessed by a demon that Paul cast out, and then she was rescued and saved. And now what you have here, these three individuals and their households, what you have is a church. You have a church plant. You have this group of people where Paul says, okay, who is the team? Who are the people that's going to start building this church and come together and partner and proclaim the gospel and support me? It began with these three people. They had nothing in common outside of their fellowship in Jesus Christ. And that made all the difference. So it is true for us today. What in the midst of the diversity that we share, in the unity that we share, in all that we face in our culture and world, we all come in with differences of opinion on things. We live in a world that is polarized. But what is strong enough? What is true enough? What is permanent enough to hold us together? What is strong enough to unite a people for a common cause? And the answer Paul shares and says in verse 5. He says that their partnership was in the gospel. It wasn't in anything else but in what Christ has done for them. I love D.A. Carson. He says this about the heart of true fellowship. He says it's a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That's a great definition. The heart of true fellowship, it is self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing conformity. So we're all after the same thing. I'm not sacrificing for my own cause. No, I am going to sacrifice and to conform to what we share, to what we hold true to. So Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. And this is what tied them together. So what is it that ties us together? What is it that you are uniting around in the church? What is it that you are so grateful for? What is it that when you come, you think, this is why I'm part of this church. This is what I love most about this church. This is what I love most about the people of this church. This is what I want to be a part of. This is what I want to sacrifice my life for. This is what I want to give myself for. What is that? It's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to get distracted from that and begin with all the information that we have, with all that we're facing in this world to lose sight and forget that our deepest fellowship, the most meaningful fellowship we have, the fellowship that Paul was most grateful for is in Christ and Him crucified. It's in the partnership that we have in Him D.A. Carson goes on to say, "What What must tie us together as Christian is this passion for the gospel. This fellowship in the gospel. On the face of it, nothing else is strong enough to hold together the extraordinary diversity of people who constitute many churches. Men and women, young and old, blue collar and white, healthy and ill, fit and flabby. Different races, different incomes, different levels of education, different personalities. What holds us together It is the gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God himself has reconciled us to himself. Right now, there can be such a temptation. There is this pull to drift away from this vision of the church and what it means to be united. There is a pull for us to begin to unite around and fellowship around everything that we disagree with. I'm with this group and our, our, our fellowship is because we disagree with these people. And sometimes these people can be in the context of the church. And what Paul is saying is, and what he's laying before us and what D.A. Carson is fighting for is say, there are these differences we have, but they're not the main thing. They're not the most important thing. The most important thing is what we share in the gospel. There is so much more important things that we share and that we have agreement on than what we disagree on. We have to fight for that. We have to fight for what we are sacrificing ourselves and giving of ourselves. And what we are conforming to is Jesus. The setup team comes, they serve, they give of themselves because they treasure Jesus. Because they love him, they want to live for him and they want to give their life for him. And we celebrate that and we want to point it out. We never want that to grow old. And so you can just see what the Apostle Paul is doing as he is setting. He's trying to remind them of the partnership that they are, they are going alongside with Paul. You have partnered with me in the gospel. You are doing that together. You're not just doing this individually, separately. You're doing this as a church You're advancing the gospel. You are are giving your funds and supporting me and sending Epaphroditus and giving of yourselves. You're sacrificing and you're you're conforming to what I've preached to you and what's changed your life. And what that is, is it's Jesus. It's Christ. It's him crucified. There's no other message. So So he can thank my God and all my remembrance of you. What do I begin with? Well, it's the one thing that makes everything else possible. It's what God has done through Christ. It is their partnership in the gospel. Anything else changes everything else that we're about to talk about. If, if, if the partnership doesn't begin with the gospel, then what we're about to consider will change completely. Everything. This, you have to begin here with our partnership in the gospel. So as Paul thinks about their partnership and their fellowship, and what God has done, and uniting them to Christ, he then reminds them of where all this began. And as he thinks about where all this began, he begins to give thanks for the confidence in God's work. Our second point in verse six Paul writes, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is this good work that Paul is referring to? Well, I think what he has in mind is the entire work of salvation from beginning to end. So from their very beginning, what God did in the work, from, from opening their heart, from giving them new hearts, from, from giving them faith and hearing the gospel all the way to Christ's return. All that. This is this good work. This is what he has in mind. Philippians had no doubt that the work had begun with God. If you think about this, if you think about the church, we just considered it. Think of Lydia's conversion. God opened her heart. Think of the jailer. He had done nothing to inaugurate the work of salvation in his life. His conversion was as unexpected as the earthquake that caused it. He was not looking for God. He was not interested in God. He, was, he had messengers of God in prison. He was holding them. And yet, God unexpectedly and out of nowhere causes an earthquake. And he was about to kill himself. And they declare to him, don't do it, we're still here. And then what caused him to ask the question, well, what does it mean? How, how might I be saved? Do you think that's just because he's a really smart guy? Do you think it's just because that he had been listening in and that he, he just decided, well, I'm just going to go with these guys. Do you think he was running from trouble? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I better, how can you guys help me? I'm going to be in trouble for letting you guys, for letting this happen. How can you save me physically? No, what he began to see is his desperate need. And the question that, we, that, that Paul is reminding them, the reality that Paul is reminding them of is, where did all that begin? And he's reminding them that it did not begin with anyone else, not even with the Apostle Paul. It began with God himself. And so this is a wonderful text. This is a wonderful reminder on a day, on a morning, when we are having baptisms. Because what it should do is it should take us all back. It should take us all back to remember to the God who began a good work in us. So when I observe and see baptisms, what I begin to do is I begin to think about when I was baptized. And then I begin to think about all that took place for me to stand on a stage and be able to declare to those watching that I believe in Jesus Christ. And what I love is to hear testimonies. And what I love to think about is the same God that saved me, the same God that began a good work in Declan, the same God that began a good work in Jacob. It's the same God that was working all of them. Even though they may have different circumstances, even though they may be in different stages of life, God is at work in each of them. And he has began a good work in them through saving them. So no matter if your baptism was 30 minutes ago or 30 years ago, our confidence and hope is the same. We serve a God that completes what he begins. And so Paul is saying that he who began a good work in you, remember God began a good work in you. How did he begin that good work? He gave you new life. He gave you new heart. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you ears to hear. And he gave you faith to respond. It's that same God. He doesn't just do that and leave. He's still at work in you. And he is working out his good and perfect will in your life. And the good news is, is that he's a God that completes what he starts So Paul, as he's thinking about their past and he's thinking about their present and all that God is doing now, it then leads him to look and direct them to the future. That God will complete what he began at the day of Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning, I think the the prophetic words we had this morning, the baptism, our text, I think that the Lord is in this place and he is inviting you. He is reminding you that he is the God of salvation. That you can call upon his name and that he will save you. That he is able to save and that he will begin a good work that he will complete. That you are his. And the good work that he is beginning in this church, he will complete. Yet the reality is, while all this is true, our confidence at times can be weak. It is hard for us to really see, is God really at work in my life? Is he really committed to... To helping me, I found this Guinness World Record for the largest unoccupied building in North Korea. It's a hotel. The construction of it, of this 105-story building, began in 1992. But it was soon halted because of lack of funds. And throughout the years, there have been efforts to try to finish it. But they have been unable to. So the outside of the building, it is enormous. It stands out. It's hard to miss. And on the outside, it looks finished. It looks nice. But if you go on the inside, what you discover is that it is just cement. It is cold. It is dead. There is. It's meant to have seven, like over seven thousand rooms. It's nothing but cement. And at times we can feel like that's how the Christian life is. That 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 I'm, I'm okay on the outside, but on the inside, I just I don't I feel like God's working. I don't have confidence that God's at work rebuilding or renewing my life. And, but I think what, what the Lord would want to encourage you with this morning is that, no, your hope, our hope as a church and individually is that this, this, the God who began a good work in you, the God who gave you new life, the God who gave you faith to trust in Jesus Christ, the assurance that you can stand on this morning is the same God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That it will be perfected. That you will when Jesus Christ returns and he says that you are mine and you see him face to face, you will be like him. That is a promise. And what that does is that does not make us take a step back and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to wait for that day. What that does is that gives us faith for today to pursue God and to trust him. What that should do is it should leave our hearts to give thanks to God that he has not left us to ourselves to figure this out. What this did for the Apostle Paul is that though he remained chained in a prison, though he was bound, he knew that the God who who started this church, the same God who gave new life to these people would finish his work. And there is nothing that can stop that. There is nothing that can stop the building and the completion of this church. And and it, it is just as true for us today. God is building his church. God is at work in our midst. And now is not the time for us to be discouraged. Now is not the time for us to think, what are, what are we to do? No, the call and the reminder is, is that God is at work. People are being saved. Baptisms are happening. The gospel message is going forth. And this, this work, this vision, this fellowship that we have, it will be completed. And our labor will not be in vain. I love what John Newton said. He said, Blessed be the Lord. I can see that my acceptance and perseverance do not depend on my frames or feelings, but upon the power, compassion, care, and faithfulness of Him, who in the midst of all the changes to which we are exposed in this wilderness state is unchangeably the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he who began a good work in you, cornerstone church, will bring it to completion. That is our assurance. That is our hope is in him and him alone. That is what the Apostle Paul said was enough for him. That's what this church in Philippi needed to hear. I believe that's what we need to hear this morning. And 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 think about it, what that begins to do as we begin to 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 change what we're looking at. If, We look at our circumstances. We look at our trials. We look at our sin. We look at this world. We look at all that's going around us, and we're fearful, and we're anxious, and we're angry, and we're bitter, but then we bring God into the picture. We begin to look and consider what He's doing, and as we do that, faith, peace, patience, love, self-control, hope, none of our circumstances have changed. Sin is still present. We are still fighting this battle. But what we're looking to, but who we're looking to, changes. And when we begin to put our eyes on the Lord, when we begin to see evidences of grace and consider what he's up to, well, what comes out of our hearts, what we begin to do is to give thanks to God. What we begin to do is to pray to God. What we begin to do is to express our need for Him and, and, and to declare our confidence in Him. And so the Apostle Paul's inviting us this morning. How does a man chained to a prisoner, lonely, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, not knowing what's going to happen to him, how can he be so joyful? How can, he, how can he care so joyfully? How can he have so much love and affection for me? Well, his eyes are set on the God who began a good work in him. And his faith and assurance is on the God who will complete that same work. So this leads to our last point. Three, affection for one another. So as we consider and give thanks for God's sovereign and gracious activity, it, it, it begins to create affection for one another. In verses 7 through 8, Paul says, I hold you in my heart. He begins by telling them that you are in my heart, that he does not just merely carry them in his pocket or in his mind, but he holds them near and dear in the depths of his soul, in the center of his being. Paul is wanting to tell them that you, no, I don't just see you as a random group of people or church that I planted and now I've moved on. And no, he's saying that I hold you in my heart. That when I see your faces, when I'm giving thanks to God for you, when I'm saying that you make my prayers with joy, well, there's a reason for that. It's because I hold you in my heart. It's because I love you. It's because they, that, that I don't see myself, elevate myself to just seeing myself as an apostle, but I see as God's called me to care for the church, and I care for you. So he loves these, these people. And, and Paul, the basis for this affection is again that these Philippian believers had partaken with Paul in the saving and sustaining grace of God. So on what basis did his confidence rest? Well, Paul knew this to be true because when he was thrown into prison, it would have been so easy for this church to run. Think about it. Paul comes, he proclaims the gospel to this church. This church gets wind that Paul is now in prison. What is this church going to do? Are they going to support this man? Are they going to fund this man? Are they going to give money to this man? Think about the implications for that. Think about how that's going to appear. Or are they just going to take a a step back quietly? Kind of drift off thinking, oh, we we won't see Paul again. No, what did this church do? They sent, they said, no, we are partners with you. No, we are in fellowship with you. No, God has begun a good work in our church and we are not going anywhere. We're actually gonna send Epaphroditus, one of our bests, one of our best men to come and bring you this support because we know that he will encourage you and that we want him to go and be with you and encourage your faith, Paul, and tell you what's going on here at the church. And even while at it, we have some problems, so maybe you can help us out. This church loved the Apostle Paul. That's what he says here. He says that it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. When he says that you are partakers of me with grace, that's another one of those fellowship, partnership. We are together. This We are self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And what are we connected to? What are we holding on to? What are we partakers of? We're partakers of grace. We're partakers of salvation. We're partakers of Christ and what he is doing. So he reminds them of that and he sees it. It's not lost on Paul what this church has done. It's not lost on him. And it's not lost on him for Paul to not just thank this church, but also to remember, yes, you are here and taking care of me, but ultimately it is my God that I thank, because he is the one that is doing this. And so Paul, he did not have some special source of grace that was only his. He wanted to make sure that the church knew that the reason for his joy and the reason was because of their defense and confirmation of the gospel. The depth and passion and affection of genuine Christian fellowship is stated again even more in verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So God is now inviting, or Paul is now inviting God as his witness. So God, hear what I'm about to say. Who can I invite to see the truthfulness, the integrity for what I'm about to say? And so he invites God himself and says, I'm going to stand before the Lord now and tell you about the, my affection and my yearning and my love for you. And it's not Simply Paul's affection. What does he say? It's the the affection of Jesus Christ. The same affection that Christ said, I have for you. And the only way that's possible, the only way, the only source, the only place we can go to share that affection is Christ himself. And so for Paul to say that I I carry and have the same affection for you is because this man, this man who was once dragging people to prison because they professed the name of Christ is now imprisoned himself in the defense and confirmation of the gospel saying to this church, that he helped to plant, that he helped to pro- proclaim the gospel to, that he cares about deeply, that he is now chained in prison for, writing this letter, telling them how much he enjoy, enjoys praying for them. This same apostle, where does he get this type of love and capacity? It's not because he is wonderful and out of this world. No, it's because of what Christ has done in his life. He's been changed. I used to hate coming to this church. I hated it. It was the last place I wanted to be. I didn't, I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like the people. I didn't. I didn't like the message. I didn't like any of it. The, the thing I looked most forward to was leaving. The music was okay. There's no place I'd rather be on Sunday morning now. There's no there's no other people that I, I would love to serve. There's no other people that there's no other people that have affected my life more than this people. I am who I am today ultimately because of the grace of God. But God changed my life. And he put me in a church and he showed me what true love is. And now that same affection, that same love that I've received, I have for this church. And I can understand how a man who so hated the church of God could be transformed to love the church so deeply and carry the church so deeply in his heart. It's because God began a good work in his life. And God gave him salvation. And God gave him a new heart. And God gave him something to be thankful for. And so now he is living in that grip of gratitude and gratefulness for God's sovereign and gracious activity. And this morning, that's what God is inviting us to do, to, to be grateful, to love the church, to don't miss out on what God is doing in the church. And, and the reality and the promise and the hope that we have is that one day our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. And what we will hear from him is, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And so we continue to serve today. We continue to love one another today. We continue to to look to one another's interests today. We continue to care today because as we look to that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who is gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that you in your providence have made sinners, have made people who hated you your own, who are now your children, who are now gathered together this morning. And I pray that more than anything, that you would stir in our hearts fresh gratefulness, fresh thankfulness and gratitude for what you are doing. I pray that we would be able with one voice to thank you, to join Paul in his heart, and his example of thanking you for people in this church, for for what you are doing in this church. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith and reminder that you're good, that our labor's not in vain, that we're looking and hoping for you to return, and it will all be worth it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.